All right. Well, if you'd uh, open your Bibles, we're actually going to be uh, in Exodus 35 to begin with. We're kind of um, jumping around. Uh, I don't know. I was, I was talking to a couple of you about the Fourth of July. I don't, I don't know if Brad said it this service, but I know you're the first service is that. I do feel like I'm getting a little bit older now with uh, fireworks. My parents were never really into fireworks, um, and so I, you know, really didn't have a lot other than I would try to grab whatever they bought us, which were usually sparklers, and then, like, duct tape them up and try to, like, because the urban legend was, like, you could create a bomb out of, like, you know, whatever, or the whistling peats, like, if you pinched them and, or opened them up and put the powder together. And so I would, like, experiment and hurt myself, but I never really got a lot of stuff. Um, so last yesterday I lit two fireworks, one for each sun, and they were tickled pink, but I know the day is coming when they want to stay up very late and light up the neighborhood for hours upon end like all the neighbors did at my neighborhood last night. So uh, first service was, uh, looked like everyone stayed asleep, and uh, I'm glad you guys are here today. We've been going through Exodus, and uh, the first part of Exodus, it's a big book, so we've been in September, a couple breaks But the first part, we went straight through verse by verse, which is what we intend to do with most of the studies we go through. The problem with the kind of the back third of Exodus is that there's a lot of repetition because pretty much Israel is like sinful. And so they screw up and God has to kind of reinstate what he said and they have to redo what he said. And so it ends up being repetitive. So if you go straight through, it's somewhat lost in translation. Um, So last week, we've we've kind of gone in, in kind of chunks. And last week, Chris talked about the priesthood. And uh, this week I'm going to talk about the builders of the tabernacle. Next week the tabernacle itself, which a lot of us have no clue what that was all about and what that looked like and the Ark of the Covenant and, and kind of explain how all of that ultimately points to Jesus, every little detail of it. And then the last sermon will be on God's dwelling in that place and, and it's pretty awesome in Exodus 40. Um, but today I thought to kind of catch everyone up and give a really quick snapshot of where we've been so everyone's up to speed on on Exodus and, and, and where uh, we've been and where we're going. Um, basically, the, the Jews, today's Jews and in the past, view the Exodus or the book of Exodus, as the term means the going out, as a, kind of the history book of salvation, of their identity, the creation of their identity as a people. And it's a story with a hero. We get confused sometimes thinking that Moses is the hero when in fact he's not, God is the hero, and God basically saves his bride or his princess, if you will, from peril, destroys the enemy, and then goes on to have this relationship that isn't necessarily happily ever after. It's more like he is loving and not being loved back, but continues to pursue and protect his bride. And it's the story, he says in the beginning of the Exodus, of saving his people from bondage so that they become something And that something is worshipers. He is intending to create them to be worshipers. And it's a story that you kind of come in the middle, kind of like I'm a huge Star Wars fan, kind of a Star Wars geek, borderline, like waited in line one time at midnight for the opening thing where you had really weird kids that looked like Jedis, like they really thought they were Jedis, and they were like hitting each other with lightsabers like they really thought they were. One guy thought he was a Wookiee. I mean, he was hairy enough to be one, and he was like growling and stuff. And the energy drink companies are coming by giving free energy drinks. So you got like hyper nerds, double fisting, you know, throttle energy drinks. And it was like chaos. But I was there with them, like going, oh my gosh, I'm scared. So I'm a little Star Wars geek. But the thing that's so interesting about the original Star Wars, if you remember, um, I remember because it came out on May 25th, which is my son's birthday, 1977. And... My anniversary is the 20th, and the new ones have come out the 20th, so anyway. But, yeah, I'm a nerd. So, it started off, the first one was episode four. So, it's like, episode four? Like, what are the previous three when it first came out? So, there's this backstory, and that's what Exodus is like. If you walk in, it's like episode seven, and you kind of get lost in, you know, what's going on. And so, the very beginning kind of gives us some insight as to what happened in the past, and it's talking about a guy named Jacob. And if you've ever read the book of Exodus, you'll learn, yes, about Adam and Eve and Noah and all these people, but eventually be introduced to Abraham. And you have what amounts to the God of Abraham and his son Isaac and his son Jacob. And Jacob has 12 sons. But the story of the Exodus begins by saying Jacob takes his whole family down into Egypt. 
And he had 70 people, which is most likely all the dads that they're counting there. But he had this group of people that go and basically are uh, cared for by his son Joseph, who, incidentally, had been sold into slavery by his other 11 brothers and had had terrible suffering experiences that, in the end, God used to glorify himself and protect the people as he brings down Jacob, who now his son is second command in Egypt, and saved the whole country from a famine, and is a hero and is praised. And so, by grace, he shows forgiveness to his brothers, and they end up you know, living high in a land called Goshen. And after many years, though, at the very end of, of um, Genesis, Joseph dies. And right before he dies, he says, make sure you take my bones with you when you guys leave. So there's this vision for, okay, we're going to be leaving someday, don't know where, don't know when. And so hundreds of years pass, and, and Pharaoh, uh, new Pharaohs rise and fall, and they kind of forget who Joseph was. They forget this, this hero that was really in their, in their history. And uh, it says a new Pharaoh rises who didn't know Joseph, and he looks out and he sees these Israelites, and they've had tons of babies, babies everywhere. And they're like... This is a problem because they outnumber us. They could join our enemies. So let's have some population control. And so he enslaves the people whom at one time were the sons and daughters of this hero of Egypt. He enslaves them. And the purpose of the slavery is to kill them. It's really to weed them out or at least oppress them enough so they can't fight back. And they will be too tired to have babies, I guess, is what the hope is. So what happens, though, is that he does enslave them. And he uses all of their skills, all of their you know, work and their craftsmanship to basically build a kingdom in honor of false gods. And so they work for hundreds of years doing this. And eventually, the population control doesn't work. And he looks at it and he's like, man, they're still having babies. And so that goes to the next level, which is basically he mass genocide or infanticide. And he creates death squads that go out to different houses, grab the baby boys, and they throw them into the Nile River. And that was his next step in weeding out or controlling the population growth. Well, one mom, the mother of Moses, wants to protect her son, so she puts him in a basket and she floats him into some reeds that most likely are hippos and alligators and all kinds of things. And the boat or the little basket floats down and is found by Pharaoh's daughter. Now, Pharaoh's daughter knows the rules, knows what the expectation is. She opens it up. It's a baby Hebrew boy, and she should report him, should kill him, but she decides instead to raise him. And so for 40 years, Moses, this little baby, is raised under the Egyptian home and educated in the Egyptian ways, which is most likely the best education system of the time. Um, He is trained most likely because he's a prince in leadership tactics as a general and all these different things for 40 years. And then one day he walks out and he knows who he is, the implication of scripture is, and he sees his Hebrew brothers getting beaten. And this is the first time you see that much like his father Levi before him, because he's from Levi, I should say great great grandfather Levi, he has a short fuse. So he sees the guy getting beat up and he's like, and he murders a guy, okay? Well, that doesn't really do well for him, so he has to leave and flee as a fugitive, and he does. And he spends the next 40 years, so now he's 80, learning the ways of a shepherd in the land of Midian. He has a family, a great life. He's, you know, out in the fields, whistling Dixie, enjoying the view, and everything's wonderful, and has a couple kids, and then he sees a little glowing bush. Hmm. What's that? Goes over and God's like, it's me. And you're going back. And he's like, what are you talking about? He's like, I'm going to release my people. He's like, oh, that's awesome. And you're going to do it. That's not awesome. So he has a little debate with him. He loses the debate. And he is sent back. Doesn't know that all of the experience he's had under the Egyptian education system, all the experience he had as a shepherd is going to be used to glorify God because he basically is going to go into a country he's already been in, already familiar with the customs and the cultures. Then he's going to go in and lead people that are pretty much like disobedient sheep, having to kick them and break their legs occasionally to get them to move. He has been prepared in all his experience by the preordained plan of God to do what he is going to do. He goes into Egypt, walks into the very familiar throne room of Pharaoh, 
to the most powerful man in the world and basically says, I'm commanding you to let them go in the name of the Lord. He could be killed with a snap of a finger. He's not. In fact, what happens is he says, I don't know who this God is you're talking about. And he persecutes Moses. Moses is mocked. And his people hate his guts. In fact, when he walks out, because the work now has been doubled, and they have to do twice as much labor, they say, what the snarf did you tell him? You must have said it wrong. What possessed you to do this? And he's like, I just did what I was told, okay? And so he goes to God and says, look, I did what I was told, and this is the mess that happened. And God says, don't worry. I'm in control. I will get glory over him. And he does. He unleashes ten plagues that devastate the greatest nation in the world time. Economically, physically, geographically, emotionally, spiritually, it's boom, gone. It's dropping down frogs. It's bringing down boils. It's hucking down huge hailstones that are the size of beach balls. It's just like wiping them out. And the final plague that comes is the worst of all, which is the killing of the firstborn. And the firstborn child of every cattle, of every family, is killed. But Israel is protected because they are allowed, by God's grace, to sacrifice a substitute in their place. And so they're released. And before they're released, to go out, basically, on their own, God says, go ahead and ask all the Egyptians for their stuff. And so they do. Hey, dude, I like that gold necklace. Take it. And they give all their stuff. So they go out blessed. From slaves to like, you know, wealthy people, and they go out, they are blessed, and they begin to go in the opposite direction that they actually expect. Like, uh, Moses, he's like, dude, I'm just following the pillar. There's a pillar cloud, and it says go this way, but I know, aren't we heading that? We'll go this way. They are led all the way to the front of the Red Sea, which is pretty much a dead end. If you ever walked to the ocean, unless you got a boat, they had no boat, and they had about a million people. So like, this isn't going to work out too well. Let's go back. You've led us to a dead end. Egypt would way better. Oh, crud. There's Pharaoh's army that wants to kill us. Now what are we going to do? So they're led to this place and God says, walk towards the water. We don't have a boat or like water wings. There's a problem here, God. And he says, walk. And so they walk and he parts the water. They still can't see the end of it. They walk into it. And by God's grace, they get out from it, and Pharaoh's army goes in and wipes them out, and they are ultimately free. They are saved. And Moses, in celebration on the other side of the sea, sings a song. Yes, he's a singer. And he sings a beautiful song in celebration of what God has done in victory. And the people sing with him. Miriam sings with him. And it takes but a few days for the singing to turn into complaining. And they suddenly like, we got bitter water. What are you going to do? We got no food. Now we got no water. And they're complaining. And they're saying, it was better for us. This is just a couple days after the Red Sea adventure, right? Pretty impressive if I was there. But they basically say, Egypt would have been a better place. I wish we would have died there. And they begin to doubt and question. And God still provides for them and protects them. He even protects them in the military fight they have, where Moses somehow is prepared to lead in this military excursion that's powered by God. And eventually they get to the bottom of the mountain, Mount Sinai, that we're all probably familiar with. And he gets the Ten Commandments that God gives him. He said, this is my law. And the people agree we will follow this law. And he gets this priesthood. This is how the priests are going to work. And then he gets these designs for what amounts to a house for God. Now, as this is happening, Aaron, who's been left in charge below, is beginning to organize his own cult. And he has his own cultic priesthood, his own cultic idols. In fact, they use the very things that God blessed them with and the work of their hands to honor a false god. Just like they did when they were in Egypt. But not willfully at the time. And an angry God finds out about this and he says, I'm going to wipe him out. Moses intercedes and says, no, don't, but I'll go down and have a little old-fashioned arse-whooping down there, and he does. 
cleans the sin from the camp, and then he goes back up the mountain. This is where we kind of end up here. And as he goes back up the mountain, God fulfills his promise to restore the relationship after Moses pleas, and he begins to restore the law, the covenant, the promise that they had, and it reestablishes the priesthood, even though Aaron screwed up, and they restart the building program for this house that God wants built for himself. And he does so by commissioning particular men to build his house. And the whole point of the Exodus, again, was to bring the people out that they might be worshipers and he might dwell with them. And he chooses to build this sanctuary where he will dwell and that will glorify him. But what I want to focus on today is the glory that comes through the process of building that thing. The glory and the beauty that comes through the gifted builders and the artists and the woodworkers and the seamstresses, the weavers and even the bakers of the food and the bread in there. All of those and how they worship through this work. So we're going to be in Exodus 35. And we'll start there and we'll learn about these two gifted men whom God calls to use the talents that he has given them. In 35, we're actually going to be verse 30 to begin with. So Exodus 35, 30, it says this, Then Moses said to the people of Israel, and this is after he's come down, he's got all the new plans that are the same plans, but the restarting the building program. He says, Moses said to the people of Israel, See, the Lord has called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and he has filled him with the Spirit of God, with skill, with intelligence, with knowledge, and with all craftsmanship to devise artistic designs, to work in gold and silver and bronze, in cutting stones for setting, and in carving wood for work in every skilled craft. And he has inspired him to teach, both him and Oholiab, the son of Ahizamach, of the tribe of Dan. And he has filled them with skill to do every sort of work done by an engraver or by a designer or by an embroiderer in blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twine linen or by a weaver, by any sort of workman or skilled designer. Now, one of, I think, the most ignored attributes of God is his beauty. And perhaps it's because in today's culture, our concepts of beauty are kind of screwed up. Um, they're a bit confusing, they're a bit strange. If you just even look at someone like the late Michael Jackson, you'll see that his concept of beauty and how he shaped his face was a little jacked up. Let's be honest, okay? I don't care in anyone's world that might have been beautiful. To me, I look at it and go, freaky. So I think there's a, a, a confusion on, on beauty, even physical beauty, but other kinds of beauty as well. In fact, in our fallen world, it seems like what happens that Ultimately, anything we call beautiful is not really rooted in God, for the most part. Um, In this fallen world, we take what's beautiful, what's intended to be beautiful, and we make it ugly. And we often elevate that which is ugly and and, and call it beautiful. And we take creation, and I'm not just talking about nature, we take creation and even our creative powers that are intended to reflect God's glory, and the majority of people in the world in culture, use it to to celebrate or glorify men. And we end up not with beauty, as God would define it, but we end up with perversion. And that perversion has a couple different things. It can often be exploitation, which is kind of what we commonly think with with pornography and things like that. But it also can be uh, some kind of self-effacement, where you go into Islamic cultures and they cover all possible elements of beauty. And so it can take different forms. It's not just what we might think perversion of beauty is. But beauty is intended to begin with God as the sum total of all that's truly beautiful. And culture may dictate or mandate what's beautiful, but it's God that actually creates beauty. And the Garden of Eden itself is is evidence of that. And it's God who declares and defines what is actually beautiful. But all creation, now we think of creation, we always go into like trees and, and rivers, but All that is created, so pretty much anything that's not God. So all of creation is intended to reflect its creator and lead us to worship. Psalm 19, you you may have heard before, says this, The heavens declare the glory of God, 
the sky above proclaims his handiwork, day to day pours out speech, his creation, and night to night reveals knowledge. And it's not just like, that's an amazing thing. It's knowledge of God. It's knowledge of his beauty. And we see and experience creation. If you watch, you know, if you just look around in individuals, in some of those really odd but always cool discovery, like creation shows that they have, you begin to see how diverse and amazing and magnificent creation is. And beauty is without question in creation in the eye of the beholder, but unless it's actually looked through the spectacles of Scripture, we will very easily begin to idolize and misunderstand Scripture. There's no, I'm sorry, creation. There is uh, no mistake that God describes himself in the terms of animals in the Bible, using these metaphors of creation to describe who he is. And I was thinking about my dog. Maybe some of you have seen my beast of a dog. I walk him around, and you're kind of confused who's walking who. He's a St. Bernard. He's huge. He's slobbery. Everything, everything about him is big, if you get my meaning, okay? So I, I look at him, though, and go, somehow that declares something about God, that gives me knowledge about God, this dog, and whether it's the concept that he's the most gentlest, kindest animal, but he's huge, that could be it. I mean, he sits on my lap, or at least tries, well, more Kim, not me as much, but like a cat. He thinks he's a cat. He thinks he's like this big, just little, you know, dopey thing, and it's cute as can be, but he's very powerful. There's something to be learned by God. I wonder if we would take the time sometimes to look around, you know, God, sun, and you know, those types of things, but even some of the little things like that bug you're about to squish, and just think, what does that tell me about the God? If, even if he's just so concerned about the details of creation, the small little things that are created that we barely even see. But creation isn't just nature. And here in Exodus, you have this house that God is very specific. He gives the same instructions multiple times about how this thing is to be built and what in particular is supposed to look like. And when it's all built, you'll see that Moses actually examines it to make sure it's exactly as God commanded it to be built. And I think we learn by not just the kind of building he picks, because I guess he could have built like a crystal cathedral or something like that, right? But he builds a particular kind, he uses particular types of materials, and he uses particular people. And all to declare the value, I believe, of beauty and the value of creativity in our lives. That I think we dismiss maybe in the busyness of our lives. Now, we are all born. I know it's hard to believe. But we're all born with the ability to create. Now, that doesn't mean that we're all artists. I know some of you, if you drew like a horse or something, it would look like an amoeba of some kind, and it would be kind of freaky. I'm not meaning we're ability to create. We kind of funnel that into like, well, I'm not an artist. And you're talking about artists today. That's just one aspect of creation. We all have the ability to create. Genesis 1, and 27 says, Men are created differently than the rest of creation. They are created with the image of God. And there have been volumes written by guys way smarter than me about what it means to have the image of God you know, as part of our nature. And I want to focus in, on this Imago Dei, or the image of God, mainly on the idea that we are endowed with the ability to create, that everyone has creative powers to wonder, to imagine, and to express in your own unique way. And it's intended to bring beauty to God. I'm sorry, to declare His beauty and bring glory to Him. Much like these two guys. Now, out of common grace, which is grace given to all men, whether they are believers or not, God gives talents to people. And these talents, though limited, are intended to give us a picture of God. Now, some of us don't actually believe we have a talent. And this is kind of freaky, but listen to me for a second. You ever thought about being in a pageant? Okay. I know the girls are like, yeah, yeah, sure. Guys are like, no, why would I want to do that? Okay, well, I've gone there. So the idea of being a pageant, I know I wouldn't, the swimsuit competition would be freaky. The evening gown wouldn't do well. But the talent portion is what freaks me out the most. I could wear a dress and a swimsuit. But the talent portion, I don't even know if they do that anymore. Okay. 
But there was a time when it seemed like the only talents that you could do is like, what are you going to do? I'll sing. I can't sing. Okay? You've heard me yell maybe if you've listened carefully. That guy who stays in the front so only Brad can hear it. That's me. Okay? But I can't dance. That show, think you could dance? No, is the answer. I don't think I could dance. I was the guy that like when my wife at the proms and all the stuff wanted to dance, would be like, have fun. Okay? I'll sit and talk to guys. So I just, you know, wasn't interested. I can't flip a baton, flame a baton, oh, that would be really cool, and I would do that if I could. But we kind of narrow talents down to be only these specific things. And I think we dismiss the, some of the amazing diversity that God has given us to be used to glorify Him. Now, there are all kinds of talents. Some we develop. Some we're just naturally born with. And some people have the talent, like, for example, just for relationships. Some people are just really good. They have, like, you know, you look at their Facebook, and they've got, like, 1,000 people, their friends, okay? I've got, like, 20, okay? And they're like, i got more than 20 people in my family. So not even all my family's in there, right? So there's some people that are just fun to be around. They're fun to be with. They're engaging. They're, they're just good at relationships. You, like, hate them because they're so nice, and everyone loves them, and you're like... I'm not like that, okay? So they're good. It's, it's a, it is a gift. It's a talent of sorts. Others are, are fantastic at communicating. Some people verbally, some written, some like interpretive dance. Not me personally, no. But some people can't speak worth a ding, but they start writing, and it's amazing. Some people um, are artistic. There are people that are artists, but there's all kinds of art, isn't there? And there's performers. There's athletes. Um, there's some are less tangible stuff, like the ability to perceive things in different ways. Have you ever sat with someone and looked at a piece of art, or anything for that matter, and you kind of come with two different perspectives on it? That's a gift, that's a talent for them to see it differently than you do. Or the ability to lead, or the ability to organize, okay? Some people can give a ton of information, and it's just so disorganized, and then some people are like, yeah, it works like this, you're like, no, it doesn't work like that, okay? Some people are meant to be engineers because their brain works a certain way. Other people, no, not so much, okay? They want to do lots of disorganized stuff because it feels good. And it's all, there isn't a good or bad in it. There isn't a greater or better at all. It's just, it is. It's just talents that God gives to everybody, whether they are saved or not. Whether they're a believer or not, they're intended to glorify God. Now, whether you are a skilled surgeon, or whether you are a technology whiz, or whether you are a mechanic, or whether you are uh, a teacher, or whether you're a mom, there are some kick-A moms, okay? Really good at it. I've tried to be a mom. I stink at it, okay? Moms just have certain giftings and certain talents that make them moms. And it's awesome. It's amazing to see those talents at work. Some guys are just really good dads, honestly. Some of us have to work really hard at it. Those are talents. They're also the idea of web designers. Admin- I mean, the list goes on. Administrators. There are the artists. But without question, those talents of mind and of heart and of ability are given by God. And we are to worship God in all that we do. All that we do. And we are made to express, I believe, in a creative way. And so, all of us are employed to work and to do something. And we are all given skills to accomplish that work. And as Luther, Martin Luther said, believe it or not, we're all given a station or an assignment in life. And when we become Christians, when we hear and our heart responds to the call of God's Word and His voice, we begin to see that that station we've been given is actually a personal calling. We begin to look at it completely different. Now, for the last three years, I've been bivocational. So if someone asks me what I do, I go, well, I'm a high school teacher and I'm a pastor. And the high school teacher isn't really impressive. And they go, pastor, you're a pastor? I'm like, yeah, I, this is how I dress, yes. So... They're not real impressed, but the reality is I've been bivocational in the most, you know, definition of the term. But Luther talked about how every Christian is bivocational. We kind of mess this up. Our first and primary and most important vocation as a Christian is that you are a child of God. 
That's number one before who you are. Have you ever been to a 10-year, 20-year reunion and it's like, let me give you my business card and everyone tells who they are. They identify with their job. Our primary identity is a child of God saved by grace through the blood of Jesus Christ. That is our primary vocation, if you will. But secondly, because God decides not to save you in the sense of remove you from the world the moment you're saved, can you imagine if that happened? Like, I believe, poof, there goes another one. I mean, that would be kind of cool. Hopefully you'd have empty churches and be like, sitting here like, dude, we got a problem here. Why are there so many people here, right? So... Because God doesn't do that, right? He leaves you here just as He leaves Israel. He could have taken Israel, dude, I'm done, we're taking you guys out, we'll start over with the world. He leaves Israel in the midst of this idolatrous world. And He leaves them there to become worshipers within this idolatrous world to proclaim God's glory through how they worship. That's us. We are given... A job to do here, primarily as a child of God, but to proclaim the glory of God through what we do, through who we are, and through how we worship. And so, God calls us, just as He called Israel, out of the idolatrous nation to proclaim His glory in the world. And He doesn't give them, to do that, a bunch of new stuff a bunch of new talents, a bunch of new things to use. He doesn't even give them a building to worship in. He gives them a building for him to sit in and they can worship somewhere else. He doesn't give them anything. Now, if we look in chapter 36, the first verse of 36, we'll see what they're supposed to do with their work. And it says, verse 1, Bezalel and Oholiab and every craftsman in whom the Lord has put skill to work and destruction shall work. And we see here that, that God has chosen these guys and others who have already been given the talents. They already possess whatever it is they're going to need. So either they haven't used it, and they, maybe these guys have been digging ditches, awakens what he takes, what they're already doing in the construction. Maybe they're digging ditches into the most beautiful ditches you've ever seen, right? Maybe they're like really ornate ditches or whatever tents. Like, he's got, like, the, you know, imagine all the tents are the same, and, like, Bezalel's tent's, like, just, like, really cool. Like, dude, look at the windows I put in my tent. And they're like, dude, you're, like, really, uh, that's a cool tent. Mine's just, like, a piece of tarp with string. It's not it's so good. Whatever it is, he either awakens what already is within him or takes what they're already doing and says, now use it for God. And we see that God fills them with his spirit that they might work in a special, more intentional way for God's work. And so those people who become Christians, those who are chosen by God, those who are redeemed by the cross of Jesus and washed clean by His blood, Jesus becomes the Lord of their life, of your life, and all that is uniquely you. All that is uniquely makes up you. God designed you. And it's, I think, noteworthy that these two guys are not from the tribe of Levi. Those are the only guys after the tabernacle is built that have anything to do with the tabernacle. Those are the blue-collar religious guys. I'm sorry, white-collar religious guys. These guys are the blue-collar workers. One's from the tribe of Judah. One's from the tribe of Dan. They are not employed as religious guys. And what is so frustrating sometimes when people become Christians is they come into the church and they believe that they have to just do church work now. I'm going to do my Christian stuff now. I've come in here and my old life is somewhat gone now. I do this in my spare time. I'm going to lead Bible studies and I'm going to serve the poor. And those are all wonderful things. But God is intending to use what He designed you to do, what He gave you to be for His glory in the church and in the community. It's not like, well, this is all gone and it was worthless. In some spiritual sense, I agree that it is, but it's, He's taking those things and transforming them. And the Lordship of Jesus extends to our thoughts and our actions and our work and our resources and our God-ordained experiences 
Think of Moses leading all the experience he's had came to that moment and all this time he was going to be used as a leader here. And our response to all of the work that Jesus did on the cross to bring us to glory, as Hebrew 2 says, our response to what he's done is to use all of our work now to glorify him. That's all of it. In Greek, it means all, everything that you are. Now, who you are, and this is, this is the thing that's maybe difficult to, to believe or to understand or to grasp, but who you are is in some way part of God's preordained mission. Okay? It is part of God's preordained mission. Your experiences, both the terrible suffering like Joseph and the other stuff that is only uniquely yours that you experience, the unique passions you have, the talents you have. All of those things are your unique calling now. And it was all designed by God. As difficult as some of that stuff was, it's intended now to be redeemed to His glory. That's why you have sex addicts leading sex addict ministries. That's why you have, you know, drug abuse people using, or substance abuse people leading recovery. Groups for substance people. All those things are intended for his use. There are experiences that you have uniquely had that can speak into someone's life, that can be used, but there's also a ton of talents. And our faith needs to be less about religion, although I understand that's both a positive and negative term. But less about, I need to just have this routines and traditions that make me a Christian, and more about taking everything that you are and just changing your desires and your purpose and your intent with how you use who you are. When you die with Jesus, in a sense, yes, you die yourself, and you are dead, and you are raised anew, but it's not like a new, completely different person. Spiritually, yes, you are dead, and you resurrect, but it's still you clothed in the Jesus suit. Okay? And now all this stuff that is you, these talents that are used, these passions are used for His glory. Here, as the church, but also just in your daily life. And for those who Jesus saves, I think, just as Israel came out, He blesses them even further, and the Bible says that we get spiritual gifts. And oftentimes these spiritual gifts enhance what we already do. And we already are. You're a teacher, maybe you become a preacher. You know, some of you are gifted at hospitality. It's a spiritual gift to invite strangers into your home and to be hospitable. I'm not good at it. That's work for me. Okay? Some of you serve like you can't believe. You just, that's, that just turns your crank to serve and to give. Some of you have the gift of just generosity. You just give and give and give. Those are spiritual gifts. And if you read, we'll get on the board, 1 Peter 4, 10 and 11 actually as well. He says here's the purpose of those gifts that we each uniquely have. And they're supposed to be varied says, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks the oracles of God. Not everyone speaks. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything, in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him belong the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. That first verse says God's varied grace. Don't pigeonhole or stereotype what a Christian is. A Christian is primarily a child of God under the Lordship of Jesus Christ, believing that Jesus died in your place for your sins as your substitute and you are forgiven in Him alone, by grace alone. That's a Christian. As you live your Christian life, that's going to look different for all of us. But it's all intended to glorify God. Every little bit that makes you who you are. And there is a very terrible temptation to become prideful or envious about giftings and talents. And what it does is when we become prideful, we begin to look down on people that don't do it the way we do. Or we look, um, oftentimes we get envious because we want different gifts. And what that causes us to do is to actually step into things that we maybe shouldn't be and even fail at it because we're not gifted or talented to do that. Some of us step into leadership when we shouldn't be leading. 
We have a unique calling and we need to embrace that calling and be what God has called us to be and not try to be something else. It doesn't mean if you have that passion that God isn't shaping you and making you that. But oftentimes we get so envious we see whatever, someone doing something that we desire to do and we're coveting because of the regard they get or the joy that they have. We want that. Not ever asking if that's actually what we're personally called to do. Now, Ephesians 2.8.9 is an awesome verse, and we usually skip verse 10. And this will protect us from being envious or prideful. And it says this, Ephesians 2, about our salvation, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. And verse 10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in Him. In other words, all the good works that we do, we do through our talents and the giftings God has given us are by grace. And they were prepared and designed and created in Jesus, for Jesus, by Jesus. So any of the good that I am doing, it's because of Jesus. So there's no use in getting prideful, but to be praising what Jesus is doing through us. Now, Christians, I believe, are given at least one spiritual gift of some kind. You can see lists of them in the Bible in 1 Corinthians 12. But God has appointed people in churches the specific gifts that are needed for the overall health of the church in furthering the gospel. So it is sinful for me, for example, to sit up here and try to play music because I am not a musician. I shouldn't say sinful. If we have musicians who could be used, it could be. But I have my personal calling and my personal gifting, and so do you. And we are not to confuse those or become coveting of one another. And we're always to give Jesus the glory for anything, for the good of the church and for the furthering of the gospel, all of which is to the glory of God. Now, The question is, well, how do I figure out where I fit? First question, actually, is do I fit? And the Bible says, yes. The Bible says, basically, God doesn't make junk, and he doesn't make mistakes, and he doesn't go, oops, didn't mean to send that guy through that experience. Wow, I'm glad that guy has that talent. No, God gave you that talent. God gave you that experience, as wonderful or terrible as it was. And he was in control the entire time. And it was ordained before creation ever occurred. You all fit. I fit. We fit. And the scriptures say that we work as a body. Not just an event on Sundays. We work as a body. And everyone represents a different part. No one represents the head. That's Jesus. But their shoulders and elbows and knees, toes, knees and toes. You know the whole story, right? And the fact remains that if you're not employing your gifts, our body is incomplete. We're trying to run a race with one leg. We're trying to lift without a shoulder or an elbow. We're trying to do something. You are impinging upon blessing us and being blessed. We are less because you are not choosing to employ what God has given you. God says these are what the gifts are supposed to be used for. Ephesians 4, to help build up the church. Romans 1, to establish fellow Christians. 111. Romans 1, 12, to encourage fellow Christians. I don't know if you ever get encouraged by seeing someone like Brad play his music, because I cannot play music. But I'm glad that he does. I get encouraged when I see people write stuff. I get encouraged when I walk in and I see people painting. Jason Franklin, he's not here first sir. He was here first sir, so I can say it now. He did an amazing job painting and directing and leading and picking colors and all that stuff. He's gifted that way. You'd be lucky or glad that I didn't pick the colors because it would look nasty, weird, and just freaky. Because I just, I, I can't. But I'm encouraged to see when people use their gifts. I'm encouraged when, I, when volunteers show up to serve at things because they're passionate about it. They, they want to do that. That's what I do. My father-in-law is like that. He just serves. That's like, you give him a task, he's like, yeah, I just want to do that. That is what he is wired for. 
And it's an encouragement to see people use their gifts. It enhances, according to 1 Corinthians 12, the effectiveness of the whole church. It expands the mission of the church beyond the present state. And as we read in 1 Peter, it gives honor to our senior pastor who is Jesus. And if God doesn't make junk and you fit somewhere, the question is where? And that's determined lots of different ways. It's determined sometimes by circumstances. Things just come up and you fill the need. It's determined sometimes by counsel where people say, why don't you try this? But more often than not, it it's, occurs or people find out where they fit by taking a chance and taking a risk and willingly taking a step into something they don't know exactly how it's going to work out, but they're passionate about whatever that thing is. And we, as a leadership, and in the church and outside, releasing you and not going, well, let's go through all this red tape, but releasing you to employ that gift to his glory. Last thing, very briefly, at the end of, well, we'll continue in 36, just a few verses. And we'll see how this works out as they begin to build. Verse 2 says, And Moses called Bezalel and Oholiab and every craftsman in whose mind the Lord had put skill, and everyone whose heart stirred him up to come to do the work. It wasn't just them. And they received from Moses all the contribution that the people of Israel had brought for doing work on the sanctuary. And they still kept bringing him free will offerings every morning so that all the craftsmen who were doing every sort of task on the sanctuary came, each from the task that he was doing, and said to Moses, The people bring much more than enough for doing the work that the Lord has commanded us to do. And so Moses gave command and word was proclaimed throughout the camp, let no man or woman do anything more for the contribution of the sanctuary. So the people were restrained from bringing for the material they had was sufficient to do all the work and more. What a great problem to have. You guys brought too much stuff. We have too many workers. We have too many people giving. So much so that all of the craftsmen have to leave what they're doing to say, Dude, Moses... Tell them to stop giving. This is free will giving. So they were required to give something, but now it's all free will. So they're like, here, take this. You can have my tent. And, you know, creating these beautiful works of art. Maybe the remainder that the ornaments they had taken off that God commanded, and now they're using to His glory. What an awesome, awesome picture of what I pray our church becomes like. Where I'm like, I. Uh, Sorry, we've got too many people in children's ministry, but thanks. We'll let you do it next time. We've got too many people writing for the spectacle. We've got just way too many people in community groups. Sorry. Okay? You know? What an amazing move by the Spirit. Okay? None of these guys, remember, those people giving or those people working are moved by their own intent. It's all by the Spirit of God. And the reality is, you look at this picture, you've got workers and you've got others. Not everyone's going to be on the front lines working and building. Not everyone is going to be in the back strategizing. Not everyone's going to be leading. Not everyone's going to be following. There are some people that are called to teach, like Bezalel, and there are some that are called to assist him. There are some who are called to build, and there are some who are called to support and give to that building. There are some who are called to design and some who are called to enhance what is designed. We have to understand our unique role and our unique passions and go with it that we might experience joy in our unique area. And all of us working together will build a God-honoring body that glorifies Him. And we never should forget that both Bezalel and Oholiab and all the other craftsmen are not working for their own glory. They're not working so they can brag to everyone. They didn't make this choice. It was God's command. The craftsmen aren't working so they can like, dude, I'm going to knock my initials on the stone. So you, they see it later like, that's my stone right there. See the gem on his priesthood thing? That's mine. I did that. They're not doing that. The givers aren't giving so that you know they can have their name on a plaque at the front of the tabernacle like high givers, you know, and, and laying it out like, well, I'm responsible for this courtyard here. Isn't it nice? Okay? That's not why they're doing it. 
They're all motivated by the glory of God. And so I pray that as I share this, you don't hear me going, gosh, we need more people serving, okay? That would be great. But that's not why I'm preaching this. I'm preaching this because even in my own life, I'm understanding that I have particular gifts and talents and I can't overextend myself into areas that really I shouldn't be in. And some of you have your own talents and gifts and experiences that you should be using and haven't used at all. And some aren't using what they should, but they're serving, and I thank for that. My hope is that other people will come and serve, that you might employ what really is you, what you really are passionate about. But we should never be motivated by obligation, because that's just dishonest. And we should never be motivated by fear, because that's religion. And we should never be motivated by regard and popularity, because that's anti-gospel. Read Philippians 2 and see Jesus gave a heck of a lot and got treated like you know what. And we should never be motivated by emotion because emotions change and they're temporal. We should be motivated by a decision and a motivation, spirit-filled decision and motivation to glorify God because of what he's done for us. I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray one of my favorite verses and then close us, which is 1 Corinthians 10.31. Let's pray. Father, I pray as you declare in 1 Corinthians that whether we eat or drink or build or design or administer or lead any of these things that are our work, Father, I pray whatever we do, we will do all to the glory of you. May our hearts be motivated, Father, not by pride or fear, but it be motivated by a desire to use what you have given us to make much of you. Break us today. Show us, Father, where I can be used, where we can be used, where we fit. Wash us in the blood of Jesus. And thank you, Father, for the honor to be used as the broken vessels that we are. Amen. Please stand and respond with us. Take my hand.